0: Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: Welcome to the table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest today is Kamesh Sankaran. I don't even know if I pronounced that right. So hopefully we came close. Uh, Close enough, huh? (laughs) Okay. And uh, um, he is professor of physics and engineering at Whitworth College and also teaches in the worldview studies program there. Um, and is chairman of the board of Partners International. But our topic today is about a conversion from Hinduism into Christianity. And so we're going to walk through Kamesh's life and just talk to him about his life experience and what he can tell us about Hinduism on the one hand and his Christian walk on the other. So I think we're in for a fascinating time together. So welcome, Kamesh, to the table.
2: Thank you. It's a real joy to be a part of this conversation.
1: Well, um, uh, what what I what Kamesh reminded me of, uh, and this uh, tell, probably says something about my age, is that uh, we last crossed paths about twenty years ago when he was a student at Princeton, in a in a, a ministry, an evangelical ministry, college campus ministry at Princeton and uh so he said it's been twenty years since we last crossed pa- crossed paths, which is uh amazing. Um, I actually can remember back twenty years and so uh, and so it's it's great to get reconnected kamesh let's start at the beginning uh you your life you grew up in India. Talk a little bit about the environment that you grew up in and uh, a little bit about uh, the home that you came from.
2: Well, thank you for asking. I grew up in a very supportive, caring uh, home in a mid-sized town about two hours from a big city, um, now called Chennai. And um, I grew up in a very um, traditional home, uh, very uh, conservative in its values, and very staunchly Hindu in its uh, worldview and practice. And um, so I grew up in a home and in a hometown where Hinduism was everything. It was in the air that you breathed and in the soil in which everything grew. So Hinduism was very much the, um, uh, the atmosphere in which I grew up. And I grew up in a very... Um, Uh, practicing Hindu home most Hindus uh, uh, today for for especially when we see uh, Indian Americans Hindus uh, Hinduism is more of a cultural factor than a a religious commitment but I actually grew up in a very committed religious home, and that was my background and uh, that's where I lived until I finished high school Okay, so
1: let's talk a little bit about that background. Um, uh, what, when you distinguish between uh, Hinduism as a religion and Hinduism as a culture, mm-hmm. because that, that is going to be an important distinction for anyone here in the United States mm-hmm. who might come across someone from a Hindi background, um, mm-hmm. um, what, what, what is the difference? What does what a Hindu religious person look like versus the Hindu cultural person look like?
2: So perhaps a a distinction between what we broadly uh, classify as a Judeo-Christian worldview, or if we throw an Islam into that as well, these are canonical religions where you have a canon of scripture and uh, your uh, uh, religious faith and practice are um, shaped or at the very least evaluated on the basis of a canon of scripture. Hinduism does not have a canon of scripture. So that by itself tells you that this is not something in which there's a clear, common structural foundation on which you evaluate this. Moreover, um, whatever fundamental uh, or should say uh, important texts and scriptures they may be in Hinduism, 99% of practicing Hindus have never read any of them. Hmm. So... What does it mean for someone to be a Hindu when 99% of them who call themselves Hindu have never read any texts? And even more fundamentally, those texts aren't canonical. That's because Hinduism is much more of a culture rather than a creed. Of course, it is a religion, but it's it's more of a cultural force than a creed or religion. And that can be a difficult idea for someone who grew up on a Judeo-Christian worldview to grasp and uh, so that's really important and for most Hindus they're not thinking about the religion in terms of creeds and doctrines and uh, evaluating is this right or is this wrong that's not the way they think about it it's just the culture in which uh, their lives are formed and that's the way they go through looking at the world and uh, that distinction is very significant.
1: Okay, so uh, having noted that, which means, I guess, and and maybe may having a little fun here, but you know, sometimes we talk in Christianity about people being biblically illiterate. There's no such thing as being Hindi illiterate in that sense. Is that right? Well,
2: that's right. Because it's not even expected to be a part of, uh, you don't need to be so, Veda literate or mm-hmm. uh, so that, that that idea of uh, what we talk about in Christian life of biblical literacy as being essential to a Christian walk the idea of say Vedic literacy as a part of Hindu life uh, it, it, that concept doesn't exist in Hinduism
1: okay that's fascinating now let me so let me let me uh, ask you one more question about this so so the religious Hindu and the cultural Hindu is there just is there not that much difference other than observance in the depth of 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 orientation to these writings, or what? What makes for the difference?
2: So, uh, Hinduism doesn't care a whole lot about what you believe per se. It only cares about how you live and function in a society. And so, the uh, I suppose the real distinction that they would make would be in terms of. Uh, the strictness to which you adhere to its prescription of life, not so much to your belief. Belief is in some ways uh, uh, irrelevant because belief requires uh, some evaluation of some uh, non-negotiable fundamentals Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of doctrine, and they don't exist in Hinduism. And so you rarely have debates about theology and doctrine. It's more about functional lifestyle commitments.
1: Okay, that's actually where I was going next, which is if you're going to talk about living in relationship to your function, et cetera, what kinds of values are are being put forward as kind of marking out what it means to live in the context of Hinduism?
2: So, in that case, uh, and that's really where the cultural power of Hinduism comes in. Mm-hmm. There is a broad ethic of how to go about life in Hinduism. And there there, there are, of course, many layers of worldviews beneath it, but most practicing Hindus don't think about any of them. And uh, so when we talk about things, even in our Western culture, when we talk about things like karma and dharma, there's so much of theology loaded, uh, buried underneath it. But uh, Hinduism talks about life as going through based on certain prescriptions of how you approach life in family relations, in your workplace, in your broader relationship with society. And those are the things that matter in, um, in Hinduism. And it's also important to note that, that there isn't a single code of ethics for an entire society. The code of ethics, uh, varies based on what strata of society you're in. And so, those are some of the uh, uh, criteria by which people are or should say—segmented based on whether they are cultural uh, or observant Hindus. So these these layers, and I take it this is where the caste
1: system and things like that come in. That's probably distinctive in relationship to seeing society vis-a-vis, say, the way a Western culture might view people and that kind of thing. There's not an inherent – I'll say it this way, you can correct me um, – there's not an inherent equality between people in the structure of the society, and that needs to be – people need to stay aware of that as they
2: engage with each other. Is that, is that a fair summary? You know, let's say you're actually getting to the heart of the matter here. From a Judeo-Christian worldview, even whether one is practicing uh, Christian or not, we function in a society in which uh, we have been shaped by the Judeo-Christian teaching of the way every human is created in the image of God, and that our underlying value comes from being created. In his image, and then as Christians, as those who are redeemed by Christ, we are adopted into his family, so that uh, that uh, you know highlights our value as human beings. However, uh, that assumption cannot be made when you're functioning in a Hindu culture, because your underlying value uh, and identity is not the same. Mm. And so that's where um, the ontology of human beings uh, in Hinduism is different Um, because uh, the basic assumption of Hinduism is that we are all living in a Maya, loosely speaking, illusion, and that everyone is trying to get out of this Maya. uh, And escape this trap of this, what we, uh, what Hinduism teaches is the illusion of a physical world, there are different calibers of human beings in terms of how um, detached they are from this Maya. Mm. And so there is a categorical difference between those who are in the upper caste or middle versus the lower caste in that uh, uh, some are simply more removed from the trap of Maya, according to Hinduism, and some are more trapped in the Maya. So there is a f- fundamental distinction, the, and therefore there isn't that equality uh, that we see in a Judeo-Christian worldview.
1: So the ability to move from, say, one strata of life to another is, let's say, made more challenging in a
2: Hindu context. Absolutely, and it's not merely a socio-political matter; it's also a religious matter. Interesting. Um,
1: uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to ask about. I mean, it, it, uh, well, let me ask one other question because I'm sure you're aware of this. Of course, one of the things that's going on right now in India is this: the India has kind of reasserted its its. Hindi roots and so um, talk about the implications of that for Christians who are in India and what that has been I mean I know it means travel into India for people who are Christian trying to do Christian work has become more challenging that's one thing that I know has happened Uh, what else is happening within the country
2: so um, let's first uh, establish something that the current policies not um, the Hindu Nationalist Party that make life difficult for Christians is not an accident
1: mm-hmm.
2: in that it is tied to their theology then, which informs how they enact practices social political practices so the reason why the Hindu Nationalist party is so um, uh, determined to uh, uh, we, without know, any uh, Christian activity is going back to what we were talking earlier about the Hindu prescription of a way of life in society. Hinduism prescribes a specific way in which society ought to be structured, and we touched on the caste system. Mm-hmm. But the caste system is not merely a vertical hierarchy. It's also a horizontal uh, hierarchy, a you know, segregation Well, in other words, Hinduism prescribes a very establishmentarian structuring of society where every person has a slot on the grid based on from the moment that they're born. Mm -hmm. And you don't have the freedom to take yourself in or out of that slot to which you are assigned when you were born based on your karma from your previous life in, in Hinduism. And imagine trying to construct a society like this house of cards. Mm-hmm. And then somebody comes to Christ and sees the freedom uh, that he or she has in Christ and decides that, you know what, I'm not going to choose to remain in this bu- in this little slot that the Hindu society has assigned to me, so I'm going to pull myself out. Well, then this whole house of cards is going to collapse. Mm-hmm. So you have to, uh, in that worldview, enforce a specific structuring of society in which nobody has the freedom to escape from it because if one person chooses to escape from it, the whole house of cards can collapse. And it's
1: like pulling a string on, on, on cloth and the cloth will come apart if you pull enough strings.
2: Exactly. It ruins the fabric of yeah. society. Yeah. So, and Go ahead. I'm sorry. So and that... Uh, drives uh, a Hindu nationalist party to then ensure that we don't want um, a Christians coming and giving people this freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is actually uh, part of the motivation. And what that means is that uh, the policies that are enacted uh, are targeted towards two fronts. One is, of course, towards any um, what they see as a foreign influence on religious activity in India, which they see as a fundamental threat to the very fabric of society, but also to Christians within the country, who, uh, in the deepest uh, worldview, come up and these people have all betrayed your society anyway. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the only question is, how do you deal with someone that you consider has already betrayed your society? Uh, to some extent, try to bring them back into the world, uh, these reconversions, or just to make their lives miserable enough that they don't play any significant part. So some combination thereof.
1: And, of course, what we're saying about Christianity is also true of Islam and other religions that are
2: in the area as well. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And perhaps uh, their bigger concern is with Islam, uh, uh, but... uh, but Islam and uh, Christian faith fall under the same category as uh, foreign influences uh, in that world view. This
1: will be my last question on India, but um, and, and it's probably a little bit dangerous to generalize. But my sense is, from what I know, what little I know about India, is that the Christian presence in the country is largely in the southern most regions of the country. And that as you move north... The makeup, the religious makeup of the country changes. Is that is that a right reading?
2: That's a generally a, a correct trend. Uh, the, perhaps an exception will be in the northeastern parts of India, in places like Nagaland and so forth. There's a very strong Christian presence in the northeastern parts, closer to China. Uh, in that region, there's a strong Christian presence, but in the rest of the mainland. Uh, that pattern is correct that there is a stronger Christian presence in the South and not as much in the North.
1: And then my other understanding, I said that I said the last question was the last question, but I guess I've lied now. Um, Anyway, uh, um, uh, my understanding is is that one of the things that was happening in India was is that because of the message of the gospel and the way in which it was penetrating, particularly the lower castes in mm-hmm. India, and it was making a penetration within the lower castes, that this was viewed as a disruptive element. And is that the Nagaland portion of what we're talking about, or, or was Nagaland already somewhat Christian
2: before then? So uh, the general observation what you made is absolutely correct. Uh, we see this from the from the gospels, right? So the uh, Christ was always more appealing uh, to the downtrodden who did not have much of a social standing, and those that had uh, social standing that they were trying to protect were generally the ones who were opposing Christ. Of course, uh, there are variations, but the the pattern. Uh, is there. And that pattern has been true when the gospel came to India as well. Those that were in the bottom of the barrel in the hierarchy of Hinduism uh, did find the gospel more appealing in that it gave them a value and a worth and a dignity in the eyes of God uh, that they didn't realize that they had in their in the Hindu uh, uh, worldview. And um, the... Uh, pattern in Nagaland, I should uh, le- speak with some caution in that I have not looked into that uh, carefully. Mm. The appeal was much more broader. Uh, mm. So you have a much larger fraction of the population in, uh, in c- certain parts of India in the Northeast that responded to the gospel. And uh, unlike in uh, the rest of the country, it was predominantly those in the lower uh, strata of the Hindu stratification that responded to the gospel. Interesting.
1: Okay, so that uh, that that's helpful. And, uh, you know, I think it's important as our world becomes more pluralistic and as the neighbors that we have are constantly in flux, if I can say it that way, because of the way people are moving around these days, that uh, for people to understand kind of if they... They come across someone of a of a Hindi background. Kind of what they, what the mindset might be as they interact with them. So I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through this. So let's talk about. So so you move from India, and I take it you came to the United States for educational purposes. I did. Uh, uh, most people don't think of physics as the way into the church. So uh, so how did how did that work? <laughs>
2: Uh, so uh, I was in an undergrad in a small school in Chicago, and then I went to Princeton where I did my master's and PhD. And uh, until that point, I was very much a practicing Hindu. And um, and yes, it was my research lab uh, in uh, uh, plasma propulsion for spacecraft that uh, was the platform setting in which uh, Christ drew me into himself. Um, uh, I had a... Dear friend who was a fellow researcher um, looking at uh, plasma propulsion systems for spacecraft and we spent uh, most of the day from the waking moment to the time we went to bed together working 14 hours a day together and uh, he was a committed Christian and uh, and I was a committed Hindu at that time and uh, we just Uh, Lived life together, so to speak, and the topic of religion would come up in the part of day-in and day-out conversations because he was fairly open about his Christian faith. And I was a student of world religions, and I thought I knew something about Christianity because I'd had culturally Christian friends all my life, so I thought I knew a few things about Christianity, but this guy was different. He apparently really believed that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And um, there was one day we were having dinner and there was a conversation. The cross of Christ came up and he actually explained, but it must have struck him that I didn't quite get what the cross was about. And he explained to me that Christ bore our sins on the cross to reconcile us to God and I had never heard that before. I had known Christians all my life, had been, and you know, I've participated in some loose Christian cultural activities. I had never heard that before. And it was startling that, how come i had never heard that before? But it was also offensive because I was a very self-righteous, pharisaical Hindu who dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and uh, um, you know, I tell people that most people when they think about their pre-Christian life, they think about the younger brother in the so-called prodigal son story, but Mm -hmm. I was the older brother who was so confident in in his own self-righteousness and his message that well, the cross was Christ bearing my sins on the cross, our sins on the cross, because we couldn't reconcile ourselves to god with that was actually offensive it said wait wait. okay maybe other people are so bad but i am not so bad Uh so that uh, led to a long journey of wanting to actually read well first it was an academic curiosity it's a wait what this guy is saying is not anything that i've heard before so started reading uh the bible and uh it was a long process of just Grappling with what uh, the claims about God's nature, my nature, and the relationship between me and God, as the Bible was saying and what I had believed, they were not at all compatible. And so.
0: This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com
1: So so in thinking about that I mean uh, thinking about where you were as a as a Hindu believer um, uh, I take it that what you saw yourself as you were functioning the way you were supposed to be functioning and and doing the things you ought to be doing etc uh, you were you were giving it your best your best shot, if I can say it that way. Yep. And 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 so the idea that somehow you could come up short and have a need was just completely off the wall.
2: Absolutely. That's exactly right. And not just that, that the need was so great that no matter how hard I tried, I could never meet that. And uh, so that was an idea that I'd never considered mm-hmm. and it was a bit offensive in that, whoa, whoa, whoa! are you saying that I'm so bad that I can never fix my own problems? And my friend said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, yeah. thanks.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. So, so you went through this process and I've, I've read your story which you've, which you, you summarized in, in a Christianity Today piece earlier this year mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and uh and what what brought you kind of to your knees, if I can say it that way, were a series of events in your life. This is actually very similar to my older brother's story who came mm-hmm. to the Lord in his fifties, and mm-hmm. uh, when he was in his twenties, he was on a list least likely to come to Christ as far as my wife and I were concerned, and we prayed for mm-hmm. him for years and mm-hmm. and you know, and we thought he would never never come, that he was as far away as you could get, and then he went through a series of personal crises in his life, and it, it opened him up, and he began to see the world differently. I take it your story is, is similar to that in terms of the kind of journey that you had. God really went to work in the circumstances of your life to show you the need for the gospel.
2: Absolutely. And the... Uh, Recognition that we can try to intellectualize it and keep it at arm's length as much as we want, but when it gets to be personal, it is sort of like you know. Sometimes I've wondered uh, to what extent uh, uh, Satan's accusation against Job, about you know actually touching his life and see see how he responds. Uh, and that there is something about uh, in academia in particular, we. like to play around with ideas because there's no real stake uh we think uh to those ideas but when things hit personal life and relationships that's when you realize that wait these things are significant and i really have to wrestle with if this is true or not
1: so you went through another interesting thing in your story that that fascinates me and, and yours is not the first that i've heard uh, that where someone goes through this is your curiosity about Christianity came in part from the culture you were seeing in in movies and that your exposure to your perception of what Christianity was. Uh, yours is like I say, not the first testimony I've, ever, I've heard from someone who's not in a predominantly Christian country that this is kind of another way in that God initially uses, which I. Something may strike people who have been immersed in a a Christian culture as strange. Um, So talk about
2: that a little bit. Uh, The reality is that most practicing Hindus who, say, live in India, but not just those who live in India, but those who live in the U.S. or who have lived in the U.S. for a long time, what they think of as Christianity is what, most of us professing believers would actually not want to associate it with Christianity. <laughs> not fair enough. Yeah. And uh, so things that are uh, communicated uh, through the broader culture of uh, movies and everything else, that's what's considered to be Christianity. So uh, it is a true statement that most Hindus, and by the way, if I can, uh, as, you, as you stated, this is true of the many those who live outside of the U.S. Most that live in the Middle East, most that live in India, and those that come from Islamic or Hindu backgrounds who still live in the U.S. Their view of Christianity is popular culture, mm-hmm. and and that is not a good view. Yeah, and uh, in fact, you know, within uh, the church, we are often wondered about: Gee, Do Christians come across as bigoted? Uh, uh, you know, all of these things. Well, if you come from a Hindu or a M- Muslim background, and especially from those parts of the world, you actually have a very low view of Christian morality. Mm-hmm. Be- not be- a- because West equals Christian. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And whatever is popular Western culture, that's Christianity. Yeah. Interesting.
1: Um, I'm going to make an analogy. i like to get your reaction to this. And that is, I guess. Um, the portrait of Christianity in popular culture is to Christianity what Bollywood might be to
2: Indian culture. Is is that? Oh, that's it, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not an authentic portrayal, but that's what's seen. Yeah, exactly. So, um,
1: and that's that's done for the for the benefit of some of those who may know what Bollywood is. But anyway, uh, still, it's. Um, uh, we used to do movie i 'll just say this much so you have background. We used to do movie nights with our kids uh, when they were younger, and some of our favorite movies that we enjoyed because of the music and just the feel of the of the movie were Bollywood movies so every now and again we 'd have a Bollywood night at the house and have friends over and 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 talk about it, it was it was It was one of our ways of trying to get to Probably not understand a culture, but get a feel for cultural differences and that kind of thing that do exist. So, uh, so that's the background for that for that remark. Um, so let let's turn our attention. So you came to the Lord. I, I take it you're obviously nurtured in a in a good church environment, et cetera, and and deepened your experience and massively, kind of yeah, yeah. And then uh, and then you moved on, and and again. And the, 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 your life has such interesting uh, turns in it. Um, because I don't think, again, I don't think of a professor of physics as necessarily being connected uh, to Partners International. <laughs> so, um, so connect that
2: dot for us. So uh, part of my discipleship in the faith... Uh, Uh, incidentally by one of your former students, uh, was to get involved. So after uh, I was put through about two and a half years of mentoring and discipleship and walking me through God's Word and uh, Christian thinking and uh, life, was serving the church in various uh, roles. Uh, Part of it was in um, small group settings, um, uh, leading Bible studies in small groups to fellow students at uh, at Princeton. But part of it was in the church, um, especially in missions. And I was grateful to uh, being a part of a church uh, that took the Great Commission with utmost seriousness. And um, I was a part of the team, that uh, of the missions team, and uh, uh, I was very... Um, Grateful to have been uh, um, exposed to significant trends and world missions uh, through that, and as committed and as involved as I was in it, there was something in the back of my mind that said, "But there's there's a gap here." Uh, and uh, uh, just to put some perspectives, the Great Commission is a command for every believer, and so no believer, no follower of Christ is exempt. From the call to go and make disciples, but it also means that it is just as much a command for the believers in each of those places—in India, in Iraq, in Algeria—as it is for the believers here. Mm-hmm. So that was the first uh, part that was. Uh, so. Uh, even though I took God's word seriously and following that very seriously, I wasn't raised in the Christian culture in the US. And that's where part of that disconnect came. I said, Well, this is where, this is the last command that the Lord gave to his disciples before his ascension. So I must take this with utmost seriousness. But then I'm looking at it and I said, But this is true for every believer, for the believer in India and for the believer in Iraq as much as it is for the believer in the US. So what are we doing about the believers in India and Iraq and every other place to follow through, uh, to live up to their calling on this? That was one of the questions that was just nagging me in the back of my head, Mm. but didn't really have a way to address it. But in the meantime, there was this other part of my calling and there was working in a campus ministry setting So uh, God opened the door for me to come and be a professor here uh, using my PhD and my professional training and using that as a setting for mentoring and discipling college students. But when I came here in my very first week, I was introduced to this ministry that I had never heard of before, Partners International, and I found out that it dates all the way back to 1943, World War II in China, and uh, so when I heard that since 1943 this ministry has been empowering indigenous ministries to build the church in these least reached places, I'm like, wow! This is what I've been trying to percolating in the back of my mind. I just never knew that an organization like this existed. Hmm. So, in 2004, I got involved with it, and eventually. Uh, joined the Board of Directors.
1: Hmm. Well, it's a fascinating story. And and Partners International, then, as you said, uh, really is designed to encourage the development of the church from within the contexts and cultures uh, where those churches reside and to help equip them to do that. Is that basically what it does? Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, uh, and and how many... uh, how many countries is, is Partners International involved with?
2: So approximately 40 countries and all in the least uh, reached, least Christian regions of So the much world.
1: of the 1040 window, for example,
2: and that kind of thing. Well, it is. Um, and since you brought term 1040 window, uh-huh. the term was coined by the former president of Partners International, Louis Bush, as he was trying to define the regions where we work. Um, and... Um, Yes, so North Africa, Middle East, Central Asia, South Asia, and Southeast Asia.
1: Yeah, Luis is another good friend, so uh, we have lots of connections. Um, so. Uh well, great. Uh, this has been this has been a fascinating journey. So, as you look at, at at kind of at at your encouragement in Partners Internet, there are actually two aspects to your life that are fascinating. One is the fact that even though you have a science background vocationally, you are very engaged with the church. And then the second part is is that your role on a campus you just alluded to mentoring students and coming alongside them, going through which I take it is an attempt to to have to do for others what was done
2: for you, if I can say it that way, when you went through college? Yeah, hey, man, I could not have said it better. Uh-huh. My life was transformed um, by the investment uh, my campus ministry made in my life, but also um, uh, there were some faculty members uh, who were very involved in the campus ministry, and their investment in my life was uh, it just had a dramatic impact on me, and uh, uh, there is no way I could have received all of those things and not given, and that just didn't seem right.
1: Interesting, So, uh, and so you've been at Whitworth really the whole of your professional career, is that mm-hmm. right?
2: Pierre, yes. Yeah,
1: so uh, I'm curious, this has nothing to do with the podcast really, but it's just a curious question. So what actually do you teach? Uh, what do you spend your time talking to students about?
2: So uh, the job for which I'm getting paid. So uh, two thirds of it is teaching uh, physics and engineering. Given my backgrounds in aerospace engineering and plasma physics, uh, that's uh, what I teach. That's two thirds. The other one third, um, I had the, um, the senior capstone of the worldview studies program that every student takes to graduate. So I bring together a team of about a dozen faculty members from different disciplines to examine uh, what are the policies that exist in education and in economics and uh, the sociology and to really uh, lift the hood and examine some of the underlying worldviews behind that.
1: Interesting. So I take it Whitworth College is a, uh, has a liberal arts um, uh, DNA, if I can say
2: it that way? That, that's correct.
1: Yeah, and, and this is the course that's designed to help students kind of put all the pieces together.
2: That's right. It's the liberal arts uh, backbone of the institution. This Worldview Studies program.
1: Interesting. So, in in the physics, you're just teaching people how to design stuff that can fly. Is that basically a simple way well, to
2: say I, it? I, I joke <laughs> with my students that at the end of the day, it all comes down to rockets.
0: At least
1: <laughs> yeah. There you go. Okay. Well, this has been fascinating. Uh, Kamesh, I really appreciate you taking the time to interact with us and to talk with us about your life and background. It's a fascinating story, and we really appreciate the insight that you gave gave us with regard to kind of the Hindu approach to life and lifestyle and the situation in India, as well as the way in which God has worked marvelously, obviously, in your life to bring you to himself, and, and now you're... Uh, very much uh, um, committed to reflecting what God has done in your life with others, which is such a wonderful model for how to live.
2: Well, thank you. Praise be to God.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and so, uh, again, I, th- I thank you for your time and your interest, and I thank those of you who are watching with the table. We're glad that you're with us and hope you uh, can be with us again. I'll just remind you that if you're interested in other episodes of The Table Podcast, you can find them at at voice.dts.edu slash tablepodcast, and there's a subscribe button. You can get there automatically, and that way you can uh, hear us. We release once a week, and we really appreciate you being a part of The Table and hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you. Thank you.